you have stories, stories you heard from your parents or your grandparents, or if they live long enough, your great-grandparents, stories you know by heart, when you think about your grandparents, does that story just come up, you start telling it? And what really brings a smile to your face? Is it the story itself, or is it the voice of your grandmother or grandfather, hearing it again, seeing the smiles, maybe watching them act it out? knowing that the content doesn't matter as much as the memory of them does. Hold on to that for just a couple of moments this morning. Now a new king arose over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. Now when we last saw Joseph, what was happening? He was forgiving his brothers and inviting them and his father and the whole family to come to Egypt and live to survive the famine, to survive the drought that was going on. And now generations have passed, maybe 60 or 80 years, since the people of God moved to Egypt. History says there would have been a dynastic change there, too. The new pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, not from the same family as the old one. And guess what? New kings have new favorites. They don't always trust the people who the old regime wants, even if they're trustworthy, right? It's human nature that over time, we lose the sense of importance, the historical importance of people and events. And that changes the way we see the world around us. Sometimes that's for the good, and sometimes it's not. Let's go back to my first question this morning. Think about the events and the people that your grandparents thought were important. People like, I don't know, Woodrow Wilson. For you, who's Woodrow Wilson? He was the President of the United States, right? Think about the stories your grandparents used to tell you. Now, my mom's watching this morning. I know she is. And she has this wonderful story she tells about my grandfather that involves chickens and potatoes. I won't even pretend to tell you that story the way she does this morning. But to her, that's an important story. She gets animated when she tells it. I love you, Mom. And I always smile when she tells that story. But here's a question. How do you think my kids respond to the story? How do your grandkids respond to your stories about your grandparents? Right? Like Woodrow Wilson, there's something from the distant past. And the new king decided that whatever Joseph and Joseph's family had done, they were now too numerous and too prosperous. And he didn't trust them. There doesn't seem to be any reason for that. So he decides he wants to oppress them. And the more they were oppressed, the more they prospered. He tried to give them more work to do, but they did the work, and they still prospered. He tried to tax them more. That didn't work. They still had more money at the end of the day. And eventually, he decides that the male children have to die. So he tells the midwives to do it. And the midwives can't bring themselves to do it. They lie. They said, listen, you don't understand. These babies are popping out. Before we can get anywhere near the scene, they're there. So the Pharaoh decides to let his soldiers take over. And it's in this time that a couple has their third child. We know that there's an older brother named Aaron, and we know there's a daughter named Miriam. And scared, they decide to hide this child. And they hide the baby for three months. And when they no longer can hide him, they do what today we call malicious compliance. 
They've been told to toss the boys into the River Nile. So they do that. But what do they do first? They put him in a watertight basket. And they send Miriam to follow him down the Nile. And off the baby goes. And guess what? Who happens to be washing in the river that day? One of the daughters of Pharaoh. And she sees the basket and sends one of her maids to collect it. And when she looks at the baby, she knows immediately that it's one of God's family. And knowing what her father's decree, she decides to keep him. Gives Mary the opportunity to come up and offer her mom, her brother's mother, there to come be the wet nurse for the baby. And months later, when the child's finally weaned, he goes back to his new adoptive mother. And the baby finally gets a name. She says, I'm going to call you Moses, because I drew you up out of the water. The early story of Moses' life is the story of God using women, his mother, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter, to set in motion the plan that will redeem God's people. David writes, if the Lord did not win on our side, let Israel now say. David's right, writing, talking about God's protection, how God works. And here he tells God's people, if he's not with us, if we had stood in the face of what the enemy sent against us. Now God's faithfulness is sometimes shown in the big miracles, right? And in Moses' life over the next few weeks, we're going to read about some of those great big miracles. We're going to see a bush that burns, it's not consumed. We're going to read about plagues. We're going to hear about how the children of God get to, a, get to a, a sea. And with the army closing in on them, they pray. And God sets their feet on dry ground. Big miracles. But we also see God's faithfulness in those times he lets us persevere in the face of what's going on not being swallowed up in the circumstances we find ourselves in. Just like at the beginning of our story, to prosper in the face of adversity, to see the hand of God protecting us, guiding us in all those little small ways, the ways that sometimes we don't understand and fully realize until we look back and ask ourselves, how did we get through that? How did I get through that? And then we can say with David, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In our gospel we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's interesting to note that in Moses' case, Pharaoh's daughter knew who he was, or at least where he was from, before any questions were asked before anything could even be answered on his behalf. She knew what was happening, and she made her choice. But here in Jesus' public ministry, it's been going on for a year and a half now, preaching in miracles and crowds. And Jesus asks, who do they think I am? And what do they tell, tell him? They say, listen, some of them think you're your cousin John. Some of them think you're Elijah, or that you're Jeremiah, or one, any one of the prophets of old. Everybody's got a favorite. The people are seeing and hearing Jesus, but they don't understand why he's there, or what he's about to do. And Jesus then asked that question of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds confidently, 
You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. God's family doesn't understand who Jesus is. His disciples do, at least in part. And Jesus commends Peter and tells him that he knows this because the Father's revealed it to him. And he tells him that on that rock he's going to build the church. Now let's be clear here. This isn't clear in English. Jesus is making a pun. Jesus loves puns. He loves dad jokes. Peter's name means rock. The word they use for rock here means rock. The eternal question is whether Jesus is saying that it's on Peter or Peter's statement that the rock, what, which one of them is the rock that the church is going to be built upon. But after that little pun, and much more seriously, he tells Peter that nothing is going to prevail against God's people, not even the very gates of hell, that his family has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The church has. I know we have this picture that we get in cartoons and that we get in popular culture, that when we get to heaven, who's standing there at the gate with the key? St. Peter, right? We've got to convince Peter that we get to go in. But I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think he's saying the church has it. Think about the implications of that. Think about the implications of what comes next. Because he's not just giving this, this power to Peter to bind and loose. Read the other Gospels. He says that about the whole church. That they get to put the cuffs on what's going on figuratively in heaven and on earth. He's not giving us the power to be Gomer Pyle or Goober Pyle and making citizens arrest as we see fit. Paul, writing decades later, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul, looking back on what Jesus had said and done, tells the church in Rome that since God has called all of them to be a part of the family, we have to live like it. We have to have our minds transformed by the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can know the perfect will of God, what is perfect and good and acceptable. Paul tells us in the next line to do it humbly, to do it seriously, understanding that what God has called us to do as individuals and as a church. And I know personally that at times being happy to admit that my understanding of God and God's will is limited can be hard to say. It can fight against my pride. That feeling I have that now that I'm mature in Christ, really I understand things better than I did a year ago or 20 years ago. But there are times when God calls us to put it aside still and listen and hear what our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through. When I was in Africa, they kept telling us we have to understand the context of the ministry they're doing in Africa. And they have to understand the context of the ministry of what we're doing here in America. They found it fascinating that we didn't have a 6 a.m. service. But we have air conditioning and they don't. In their context, everybody has to be home, has to walk home from the second service before it gets too hot. and hear the stories of how God has brought them and what God has brought them through and what he's brought us through and then be able to love them and for them to love us even when we don't fully understand what's going on. And Paul says here and he says elsewhere that sometimes the difference in opinions aren't always based on life experience. Sometimes they're based on what God has called us to do. Right? He uses the metaphor of the body of Christ. 
And he says, listen, we're all one body, but we've all been called by God to do different roles. If you're a hand, and all you want to do is help. Or if you're a foot, and all you want to do is to go somewhere. It can be hard to be understand when the nose stops and says, listen, we have to clean up now. We smell. Or when someone says, like a mouth, listen, we need to stop and we need to train and teach and form and disciple. When all you want is more warm bodies to help you with the ministry that has to get done. That while we each have a role to play, we have a calling to fulfill. That God has called us to worship together, to present ourselves as he talks about in the first two verses. But not just in worship, but in our ministries, right? Paul goes on to say that the preachers should preach according to what they know in proportion to their faith. Not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Or those that minister to others to do it humbly. Those that have been called to teach, to teach what you know and understand. That those that are called to build each other up, to do it in love. And those called to give, to do it generously. For those called to lead, we do it with diligence. And for those whom on God has called to show compassion, to show each other mercy, to do it cheerfully. Not like we did sometimes with our siblings, right? I'm going to forgive you because if I don't, the consequences are worse. I know I gave one or two apologies because my father was standing behind me and I knew what the consequences were if I didn't say, I'm sorry. But no, God's called us to do it cheerfully. Listen, God calls Moses to lead his people out of bondage. Just like Jesus will be called to lead the rest of us and go through the open door as the Messiah. Look what God did to bring them to that place where they can fulfill their callings. Moses has to float down the Nile, protected by Pharaoh's own daughter. Jesus is born in a manger, and his family has to be warned by an angel to go to Egypt to escape a madman. David says we can be sure that God is working on our behalf, because we can see what he's done. Even if it's not always obvious on first glance. And Paul's telling us that God is telling us and calling us to work through each one of us so that we can worship God, but also so that we can work together to show God's love to the people in our broken world who need to hear and to see it. And God has called each one of us to do it in different ways. Some of us he's called to preach and teach, and some he's called to give and encourage, and other he's called to go out and give food, or by showing God's mercy. I read a statistic the other day that seems true to my own experience. It said that less than 20% of people that start attending a church attend it because of the pastor, the priest, the clergy. The vast majority of them start attending the church because of something one of their neighbors or their friends or their loved ones did. Some way they showed God's love or invited them. Whatever part of the body you are, know that God has called you to do that. And whatever you're doing, remember to always do it with humility and by leading with God's love. 